0: Welcome back to Decouple and to Krollenstein, Episode Two. Uh, for those of you who tuned in last week, let's do a brief recap. Um, James came on and uh, recounted to us the illustrious history of the U.S. nuclear buildout um, and its idiosyncrasies. Um, it was a, it was a big uh, learning case for me. Um, some really exciting and interesting anecdotes, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What went well, what didn't. Um, we kind of wrapped that up with a bull's case um, for the AP1000 where James was talking about – you know, and this was news to me that there's a number of sites that are kind of license-prepped. You could build an AP1000 on them tomorrow. We might expand on that a little bit. Um, and we also started to look at where things are headed right now, what the path dependencies are. We talked a little bit about um, the, the role for SMRs, um, the rationale behind them, um, and that having a lot to do with finance. So I want to just kind of pick up right where we left off. Um, and dive in. But this episode, we, in the, we were looking at the past in the previous one, um, maybe trying to identify some patterns. And, you know, in re-listening to that episode, um, what I look at and what I understand about um, plans moving forward or path dependencies moving forward looks like um, we could be repeating a lot of a lot of similar errors. So we titled that episode. Um, what do we title again? Those who are those are <laughs> do not learn history, or fail to repeat it, something like that. Anyway, James. Welcome back. I'm about to jump on a flight to head out to uh, to a conference at MIT in Boston. So my uh, apologies to you and to the listeners for being a little frazzled and unprepared, but um, wanted to, wanted to have you back on urgently. Uh, Jigger Shaw is coming on um, August 8th, uh, so it's going to be. Uh, I think this is going to be an exciting prelude to that that interview, talking to the man with some of the purse strings involved, um, and trying to uh, you know in good faith um, argue for what we feel makes the most sense how we can do nuclear. Well, I I've been, I've been referring to nuclear recently as, um, it's kind of like an Olympic games and like, you need your athlete to be absolutely dialed in, um, you know, on their nutrition, on their sports specific training, on their physiotherapy, everything needs to be dialed in. Cause if you show up to the, um, the Olympic games, you know, fat and out of shape, it's just an embarrassment. Um, and so with that and glorious analogy in place, um, I'll I'll hand it over to you in terms of picking up where we left off.
1: You, you know, it's funny, you you compare it to the Olympic Games. I sometimes compare sort of what's going on uh with the um nuclear industry. It's sort of uh I call it industrial ADHD. It's sort of this idea sort of that we um how do we wanna say it? Like we we just did something incredibly hard and incredibly difficult and we it it kind of beat our ass a little bit excuse my i don't know if i can use that's that's kosher but (laughs) but it beat our ass and now we want to do something completely different right after the point where it got sort of easy like 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 a student uh who who just finished a big report and now is, is 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 um distracted by the next shiny object and The real point that I think we're in in the terms of the nuclear sector today is at a really transition point. Today actually was the day that Vogel 3 entered commercial operation uh, in in the United States, Uh, the first AP1000 in the U.S., I think the fifth AP1000 globally that has entered commercial ops. And what I we talked a lot last episode about this sort of buffet of different reactor designs, different approaches to building nuclear power plants. And then we took that buffet and then we operated it for, you know, a couple decades. And what I like about these evolutionary generation three and generation three plus designs is what they did is then they took the best, the best of sort of the hits of that buffet and then condensed it into a new power plant design that um, that also had some evolutionary improvements, particularly on the safety side. And the safety side, what we'll talk about, I think, which is really interesting, we talk a lot about how it improved safety, actually, and it does, it reduces, if you look at, say, the AP1000 probabilistic risk assessment, it says that it's basically 100-fold less likely to have a core damage event, like a meltdown event, than the existing very, very safe Generation 2 plants that are operating today in the United States. And that's great, obviously, and that's a great selling point. But the real thing that I think really happened here in what we did, particularly on the AP1000 and these passive plants, is actually make the safety simple systems much simpler and much cheaper to build, at least hypothetically. And that is actually one of the big advantages of passive safety. Yes, it's actually safer, I would argue, um, and it doesn't depend on external power or even emergency power. Like, uh, and obviously that was a big problem at the Fukushima, uh, you know, incident. But um, it also dramatically simplifies the systems that are necessary to do that. And, and we can go a little bit into that. But what, what I look for, what I'm kind of thinking about, it, and I'm a small C conservative when it comes to nuclear power plants, and I think this is where Ontario, to you guys' credit, have, have really gone so well in going in the technology that people are familiar with, that the regulators are familiar with, that the operators are familiar with operating. And that's what, for your guys, it's the can-do and I think for the United States, to be honest with you, it's going to be evolutionary versions of the pressurized water reactor and the boiling water reactor that I think I see in the future and then in the near future really being the major build out. So there's a couple of different avenues we can go on. We can say why I like the AP1000, the licensed sites that are ready to go today if we wanted to build an AP1000 in the United States. Um and sort of why i like this design so much um and why i think it's 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 sort of based on the vogel and, and summer experience kind of gotten a bad rap even though it's a pretty amazing and i would even dare say like kind of cool and sexy design
0: well i think um it was uh, again a, a probably from a non-recorded part of a previous conversation where you talked about the nuclear industry being champions of finding technical solutions to non-technical problems and i think some of that is is the sort of uh chasing of of even greater safety margins um, but the other is this idea that maybe we're off course. Uh, maybe you know, boiling water reactors, pressurized heavy, uh, heavy and light water reactors. Um, you know, we're we're just a, a step along the way, or maybe even there was a conspiracy. You know, with Rick over, and we should have gone with with some other chemistry or, or technology. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, I think General Atomics pursued a high temperature gas reactor. Um, is, is there a reason i mean do you read this in a conspiratorial light or is there a reason why we don't see breeders and molten salt reactors all over the place are they just a harder technology to innovate or you know are we ready to to just ditch you know and i'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit but ditch sort of what we sure. know to embark on something that's better
1: you know look i think there are a lot of applications that we're going to need to have nuclear energy serving that light water reactors pressurized water reactor boiling water reactors or even your non-heavy you know, water reactors, you know, can-dos, are not going to serve. And like process heat applications, for example, are going to be really hard just because a pressurized water reactor or light water reactor operates, you know, gives steam at 300 Celsius, maybe max, 315 degrees Celsius. It's just not hot enough for a lot of the process apps. And, and in that case, for process heat applications, we are going to need new technology. I think looking at where the fuel cycle is going to go Assuming we build out a lot of nuclear power in the, in the future, we're going to need new technology. What I'm talking about is what can we deploy today? What is the stuff that in the next couple of years is going to be able to deploy commercially and not be research experiments that are ready to go? I am all for us advocating for research for in molten salt, in liquid sodium, fast reactors, in high-temperature react, gas-cooled reactors. I think we really... Um, we really need to do that. What I'm talking about is commercially, I am less convinced that those technologies are really ready to deploy now. Um, so just going back to your question, was there a conspiracy? I, I don't think there was a conspiracy right, against it. I think there was a couple of coincidences of history that we really started investing a lot of the money in the, these two technologies, in PWRs and BWRs. But remember, the first real nuclear power plant in the United States in Arco, Idaho, EBR-1, Experimental Breeder Reactor Number One, was not a pressurized water reactor or light water reactor. It was a liquid sodium, actually, I think a sodium potassium eutectic uh, fast reactor. Right? Um, That and we've seen other. And as I said, there's been two different commercial nuclear power plants in the United States: Peach Bottom Unit Number One in Pennsylvania, and Fort Saint Vrain in Colorado that were high-temperature gas reactors. And, of course, internationally, we've seen both in France, right, before France in in the 1970s went to the pressurized water reactor, they had their own indigenous gas-cooled reactor technology, as, of course, did the British. And every nuclear power plant operating today in the United Kingdom, with the exception of one, is an advanced gas reactor. It's a high-temperature, graphite-moderated gas reactor. Um, even in the Soviet Union and in, in Russia, we have a liquid sodium fast breeder reactor program that's commercial, right, at Beloyarsk, where We have 600 megawatts, 800 megawatts, now even a bigger uh, liquid sodium reactor that's going to come online. And what we see just in all of those cases is we don't see them saying we're never going back to light water reactors. In fact, in the British case, we went from the advanced gas reactor, which is the current one, and the Magnox preceding that. Now the British builds are all in the future, in your immediate future, going to be light water reactors. Same thing with the Soviets, with the Russians, excuse me, I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, anachronistic there. But the Russian program, right, is heavily, heavily on their pressurized water reactor, the VEVER, the V-D-E-R, not on the, on the BNs, which are their liquid sodium fast breeder reactors. And they've been doing this for decades and decades. So what I'm trying to say is not that these technologies in the future can't play a very very important role. I just don't think they are as technologically mature as we need it right now in the nuclear sector to be. Right where where I really think what the nuclear power industry needs to demonstrate in the western world is that we can deliver plants on time, on budget, that then when they operate, they operate superbly and that they're not science experiments, they're boring. Like you don't hear about them because they're just they're just chugging out power 24/7. And, and what I would like us to see is focus on developing and maturing those other advanced technologies for those applications where we really need them
0: right so you mentioned a couple a couple examples there Russia the VVER um, is their workhorse reactor that they've standardized over time and this is the one that they're printing out locally and, and is running their their export market China you know after sampling the buffet lunch um, of uh you know basically everybody's reactor design except for they didn't want the japanese obviously because of some uh, underlying tensions there there's a few reactors they didn't sample but you know they got the can do's and and now you know they have sort of a side research project i think they even have a you know molten salt reactor in operation they have a high temperature gas reactor um in operation you know but these are as you're mentioning kind of side projects i'm not sure if Korea's analogous i mean they have seem to have standardized on the apr 1400 um, and they are doing some, you know, SMR research and things like that, but they have a workhorse um, which drives the industry, um, generates the credibility, generates, I don't know, the revenue, um, and then these, these side research projects. In the States, it seems to be kind of the inverse. You finally standardized the reactor down to the AP1000, and now, you know, I guess you were diagnosing this as kind of sectoral ADHD. Um, we're on to um, looking at a plethora of other designs. Now, in, in our last episode, you mentioned, um, you know, how this all began. A lot of government stewardship with the initial R&D and then involvement of the private sector in deployment. You know, three or four different EPCs and, and technology companies coming out of this. Uh, I should say technology companies, probably lots of EPCs. Uh, but these were technology companies that did more than just nuclear. They they didn't just come into the game with a reactor design. I'm not sure if General Electric at the time was making like washing machines and every domestic appliance you can imagine and, and everything else. But what strikes me is quite different here. Um, again, with, you know, Jennifer Granholm's tweet, which I I haven't found, but we'll keep keep on referencing, is this (laughs) idea that, you know, that's how the the Russians and the Chinese do it, you know, big state involvement, picking a winner. In America, we do things differently. I guess I'm just curious about sort of the psychology, um, like what is distinct, because this seems to be, seems to be having a pattern that's repeating itself again in America with this kind of renaissance or, you know, a, a, a new sort of nuclear age dawning on us. seems like a lot of the mistakes have not been learned and may be replicated, but with actors who are much less credi- credible than like 1950s or 1960s General Electric or Westinghouse or.
1: Yeah, you know, I think as you, you're alluding to, right, uh, the, the four, the big four nuclear steam supply system vendors that that built the U.S. operating fleet. So Babcox and Wilcox, combustion engineering, Westinghouse and General Electric. All four of them at the time were power plant manufacturers that made fossil, their main product lines, especially when they first started in this, were power, were fossil power plant, you know, equipments. GE, of course, you know, was founded and co-founded by Edison, Thomas Edison, right, to make power plant and grid manufacture you know, grid equipment, and then spurred out, as you're talking about, to electrical appliances. But their bread and butter was building power plants. Uh, and the equipment that goes into power plants. Combustion Engineering, as their name implies, was not initially a nuclear power plant company. This was a company that had built a very specific type of a fossil boiler. Right, it had huge expertise in steam engineering and building steam thermal power plants. Babcock and Wilcox famously invented a new type of um, uh, of coal boiler in the 19th century and has been going on from the steam age all the way through to the nuclear age. And and Westinghouse, right, was George Westinghouse and Nikola Tesla. And yeah, the Westinghouse, you know, uh, they did a lot of work in railroads, but they were a huge industrial company with a massive steam turbine business and were in all sorts of issues. Now, that might have been, just to be frank, why that might have been the historical facts that led us to the light water reactors to these sort of analogous systems that look a lot like a big fossil plant, maybe a, a lower temperature, less efficient fossil plant. But regardless, there was a huge amount of industrial expertise in building those sorts of thermal power plants that led to that foundation that we got into. But I think to your point, what these companies had, and, and we can't under underestimate this, they had been building coal and gas and oil-fired power plants for decades. And they had the experience of how actually things Work in the real world, and you know there is this great uh, memo by Hyman Rick over um, nineteen from nineteen fifty two or fifty three about the paper reactor problem. That no matter what happens, every reactor on paper looks better on any re- than any reactor that's ever been built. The second you actually try to start building it, you encounter all sorts of real world challenges that were part of these unknown unknowns. You didn't even know that this was going to be a challenge, and that became a major major sauce, uh, source of cost drivers of schedule overruns that just you weren't able to anticipate until you built it and got that operating experience. And that's why I really do think that the industry got it right the first time, right, in the 2000s, in generating these third-generation light water reactors that were based on decades and decades and decades of operational experience that we had in the existing fleet and also manufacturing and building them. We didn't execute them very well the first time but now is the exact the best time. I mean this is why it's so bullish here is that we we got the constructability experience. Let's capitalize on it. Let's not let that go to waste.
0: So I mean it is interesting. Um, there is a you know plethora of, of reactor companies now, um, many of them which which don't look like combustion engineering or or Westinghouse or or GE. Um, interestingly, the kind of SMRs that are kind of maybe surviving the hunger games here. Um, I mean, we're still early. None of them are actually being constructed or deployed at yet, but there's plans, um, you know, G, Hitachi, Westinghouse, these are companies that again, have that credibility of, you know, having built large industrial projects of having a, you know, a broad array of technologies and product lines of actually doing things. And then we have, um, like, I'm, I'm not sure. I think new scale is, is a startup that's completely centered around building reactor design. Oaklo, similarly, um, like this, that's a very different model. And, and, you know, a lot of the, um, The hype I see around SMRs is, well, you know, they can plug into smaller grids around the world, but, you know, countries that are new to nuclear are unlikely to want to sign a deal with a startup company rather than a state entity like Russia, who's going to take care of, you know, all of your, um, you know, fuel cycle needs as well as financing, building your reactor, et cetera. Like it just, it seems like there's been a lot of naivete in the last like 10 or 15 years where other than Vogel the west hasn't been building anything it's it's a great time to imagine but again the hunger games are coming and <laughs> we're seeing things getting paired and whittled down people are all still playing pretty nice i'm seeing in the, in the discourse like no one's yet yeah. casting a lot of uh shade on anybody else's tech but I, I wonder if that's coming soon
1: so you know i think the the real question on the grid you know i i hear a lot of the discussion about SMRs, right i'm on you know Building a gigawatt scale plant or two gigawatt scale plant, if you're talking about a multi-unit, large modular reactor, that is, you know, there's a huge grid issue here, right? You can't just pop that down randomly without building a huge amount of transmission infrastructure. But I think for the United States in particular, where we still get a non-trivial portion of our power from coal, and historically, just even 10 years ago, got a lot more from it, there are so many sites in the, dozens and dozens of sites in the United States that you would not have to build a single new, you know, foot or meter of transmission lines to just plop in a one or two gigawatt plant. And, you know, when we were talking about what we're talking about in the U.S., let's let's keep that as an example, where the Department of Energy is even saying with, with as aggressive of renewable wind and solar build-out that you can get, right, we're probably not going to even come close to it. To reach our decarbonization goals, we're going to need probably around 100 to 200 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity. And I'm sorry, there's no way in which we are not going to have to build some new stuff at new sites to do that. But the whole point is there's a lot of low-hanging fruit right now that we could deploy a dozen or two dozen new reactors at a site that already has all the transmission there, already has the circulating water infrastructure or at least access for cooling needs. Let's focus on what the easy stuff is. Let's let's try to crawl before we run a 10k marathon. And that's what I'd like us to look at. Let's take a design that is built on an evolutionary understanding of 70 years of operating light water reactors and sort of perfected that Took the best of every everyone and sort of tried to put it into one design with evolutionary simplification of the safety systems. Um, and that we've built and we have a regulator that is now, you know, experienced in that regulatory process. And we have a construction and work crews and a supply chain that actually has done it. And more importantly, as we're saying right now, Vogel 3 is supplying, is at 100% power. It's signing more than a gigawatt of power and powering Georgia houses and homes. And we have four reactors in China that have had a remarkable, remarkable experience of of just being super reliable, especially for a a first-of-a-kind design in, in doing that. That is, to your question, if you're thinking about building a new nuclear power plant, One of the advantages the Chinese and the Russians, and to be honest, the Koreans have, is they can say, you know, when Baraka was built, they could take them to an APR-1400 that was operating in South Korea. If you're building a VVER, you can go to an operating VVER. Hualang-1, the the sort of standardized three-loop Chinese pressurized water reactor, there's an operating Hualang-1, right? And you can go and see it. And it's not just vaporware. It's not just a paper reactor. And I would like the West, we should not abandon, by the way, by any stretch of the imagination, design, developing SMRs. They have really important applications. Generation 4 technology is incredibly important. But that we should be understanding the level of technological maturity that these various technical options are. And right now, we need to prove that the nuclear industry can at least deploy tech on time, on budget, have great operating characteristics once they're done.
0: So what do you make of plans like, uh, you know, I think it's uh, Liash of the TVA talking about 20 plus uh, small modular reactors um, within the Tennessee Valley Authority? I mean, you're getting up. I, I know you were saying earlier that in terms of, I think, your your interpretation, the fundamental driver of the SMR logic is utilities afraid of being bankrupted by, you know, large capital projects. Um, I guess this is a potential to sort of feel it out, see how it goes. I mean, how do you envisage those first deployments being? It sounds like this technology is going to be fairly reliable. We're coming off of a long experience with it. But just in terms of the economics, I imagine those first units are not going to be that economical, both some wrinkles to work out in terms of the first of a kind nature of them, first of a kind construction, but also, um, you know, just them not, not conforming to economies of scale.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, the TVA is focusing on, my understanding for the initial deployment on the same one that uh, uh, OPG is also, uh, uh, Ontario Power Generation uh, in in Ontario is also focusing on, which is the BWRX300 from General Electric Hitachi. And, you know, I think a a lot of us, it's sort of our favorite small modular reactor right now that's ready to deploy, just because the BWRX300 is a very big, it's about as big as you can get as a small modular reactor at 300 megawatts electrical. Right? It, it is based on a lot of evolutionary technology, although there are some differences there. And the big question that we have to all ask is, is the BWRX300 going to be able to compete economically with a large reactor as we start building more of them? And the whole point I want to make here is if you're building 10 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity, well, that's either 10 AP1000s, or maybe a little less, or that's going to be 30 BWRX300s. And that's about as big as you can get. And it's not clear right now if the economics, the economics may actually favor the BWRX 300. Let me just be clear. You know, there's a very recently published analysis of this by Karush Shivron's group at MIT that really argued that it's not actually clear if maybe in some cases where you're labor constrained, the X300 may actually beat the AP1000 economics just because you don't need as big of a workforce at that site. However, I have to say I'm a little bit skeptical that the X three hundred is really going to be able to compete with the AP one thousand. If we look at one of the biggest drivers of cost overruns in nuclear plants, it's what we call improvements. You know, the civil works. It's it's sort of digging down and getting a, a pouring a base mat, getting that that um you know that rock inspection done, the bedrock inspection done, and really doing that sort of fundamental work of, of laying a foundation, laying mud mats. Uh, and, and, and doing that, that's very challenging and very expensive and doing it to the seismic qualifications that is necessary for a nuclear island is, is very, very technically complicated. And when I look at the X300, I'm looking at a design that sort of takes that and says, you know, hold my beer, right? It's like saying basically we're going to build for a 300 megawatt plant, we're going to build 150 foot, 50 meter deep. Uh, a shaft that is thirty feet in diameter, a uh, thirty meters in diameter, ninety feet in diameter down, and seismically qualify the entire thing, and use maybe we're not sure yet, but maybe use a novel technology called steel bricks to be able to actually line that those walls, and then build the reactor building and containment within that, and that seems you know like a very technically challenging you know improvement. Uh, to be doing and quite intense. And at the end of it, you're only getting 300 megawatts. You know, when I was at the SMR conference in Atlanta, I was speaking to an old uh, Stone and Webster engineer who had built a bunch of plants. And he was sort of scratching his head at the BWX300. And he said, we kind of have looked like we've taken the hardest part of, uh, in some ways, not the hardest part, but one of the hardest parts of building a nuclear power plant. And we've made it, well, not easier. Let's put it that way. And at the end of that process, you're only getting 300 megawatts. So the question that we have to say is, can we really get that process down so much that it actually beats out, say, the, you know, the AP-1000? Um, I'm not so sure. I'm I'm convinced.
0: Yeah, I love this. I love this. So what? And the rationale for going deep like this, is it partially to reduce the amount of concrete needed for containment? Is it a safety measure? I understand it's because of natural circulation, you need a really, really long RPV, reactor pressure vessel. Like, what, what is... What is the rationale? Because I see, I see a lot of it sounds like a lot a lot of these kind of three plus designs are requiring pretty major modifications of existing plant architecture in order to accommodate these, these safety margins, which maybe are nice, but um, are certainly driving costs and decreasing constructability in my very amateurish outlook. But yeah, specific to the X300, so I'm not, what's I'm the gonna, reason I, for know, I'm,
1: I'm not a G Hitachi engineer, and I don't mean to speak behind the motivations behind that particular design choice. And I'm not going to. But what I will say is there's some you can guess at a couple things that they're doing. One of the things that has been an issue um, uh, in getting uh, SMRs really deployed and, and large reactors is the aircraft impact assessment rule that came into force by the NRC in 2009. And that basically requires after September 11th, the idea that a nuclear facility needs to be able to demonstrate that it can withstand an impact of a large um commercial jetliner intentionally flying into it and still, you know, protect the safety and not have a, you know, not have a core damage event occur out of that uh, with with high confidence. And this has actually been a major problem with the new scale design, as you may know, which is this really small, you know, initially this 55 megawatt electrical little power module. And now we had to build it into the world's biggest, most expensive swimming pool. And that swimming pool, the reason why it's the biggest and most expensive is to be able to comply with the aircraft impact assessment rule. And I would imagine that what GEH, and I'm not, I, this is not based on any in, in, insight, I imagine one of the factors that went into is how do we comply with this rule without getting to very exotic concrete steel, you know, shield building designs, which actually became a problem with the AP-1000 uh, it, it, with revision 19 of the DCD. So, so I imagine going underground is pretty nice to withstand a, a, a aircraft impact. And, and I imagine that, that, that has a lot to do with it. Um, But I'm not so sure about what was going on in that. And it does, and I've seen, you know, if you talk to GEH, they'll say this is a very, very simple, uh, relatively simple civil engineering process that we do all the time. They're doing to their immense credit, they are working with a EPC called Black and Veatch, and they're doing a demo, a scaled demo of this constructability. I believe it's actually happening at the Clinch River, at the TVA Clinch River site, and with a lot of government money to do those construction techniques. Uh, demonstration of how we're going to actually build this shaft, but I I, I just want to say you know even the thing about simplifying concrete we've already the AP one thousand already is, takes dramatically less concrete per megawatt electrical than a uh, than a um, you know generation two pressurized water reactor or even boiling water reactor and same thing with you know just simplification of the system I mean just to go back to the AP one thousand. But right, we have 50% safe, fewer safety-grade valves in the AP1000s compared to a Gen 2. We have 35% fewer pumps. We have 85% less, uh, 80% less safety-grade piping. We have 45% less seismic building volume and 70% less cable in the AP1000. And despite that, we didn't just hit the AP1000 out of the park. It kind of shows this sort of the paper reactor mm-hmm. issue that um, yeah. when we have all that simplification – that is great, and that really can, in the long run, be able to get us to a much more deployable, constructible design, but it doesn't guarantee it. And if you don't get the, the basics correct, no matter how simplified your design is, you're not going to be able to just deploy these, these power plants sort of willy-nilly and, and turn a key and get them built. It's A lot of this is the practicality.
0: Well, as I, as I understand it, it's a pretty fascinating history because the AP1000 was originally the AP600 and the way to justify cranking out a reactor with a smaller economy of scale was that it was so modular, it would snap together, we'd get construction done in like two and a half, maybe three years. I, th- I think I remember seeing some promotional material like that. I mean, it's an extraordinary history and now we're getting into the AP300. It's just, <laughs> we can't make our minds up about what kind of numbers to put after the uh, the letters.
1: Once again, you know, I think the AP one thousand also is actually not that much larger than the AP six hundred, but it has a you know it's almost double in size um, in terms of power generation capacity. But the actual physical dimensions of it are not that much larger. But one of the things that I think what's weird about this the AP six hundred I think the reason why no one bought it, even though it was design certified, was because it was looked as too tiny. And I think we're kind of going in the opposite direction now which is interesting. And I do think, you know, to go to foreshadow something, I would like Jigar Shah to talk a lot about. I think we all can actually agree that probably a large modular reactor, you know, when we're talking about deploying gigawatts and gigawatts and gigawatts of new nuclear, and God hope that's what we get to, you know, a small difference in the actual, you know, price per megawatt hour is going to translate to billions and billions of dollars indifference in the cost. So us figuring out how we can deal with those those that non-technical problem, which is the project risk, it's the system risk that building a nuclear power plant in the current way we finance new power plant and new nuclear power plant builds in the United States, how we can deal with that market failure. It's not a technological failure, it's a market failure of figuring out how do we finance these plants in a way that actually utilities will be willing to order them I think we've spent too much time trying to nuclear engineer that problem, yeah. not enough time financially engineering that problem, even though it's primarily a financial engineering problem. Because from the nuclear side of view, I really do think that, it, that the case is pretty clear for larger reactors for, for a U.S. type context where we need to deploy those gigawatts.
0: Well, it's, it's fascinating up here in Canada. Um, the, the, the license design we have ready to go is um, the enhanced CANDU-6, which is about a 700, 750 megawatt reactor. And there's interest in building Candu. You know, 4,800 of these 6,000 megawatts um, is is designed to be large nuclear, uh, according to the announcements. But apparently, the utilities are saying it's not big enough. Um, We want a gigawatt scale Candu, and it's just it's just a makes you shake shake your head or do a double take because at the same time, we're using only one quarter of the licensed capacity of of uh, of our site that's ready to go at darlington with with four beta x 300 so nothing nothing makes sense anymore it does feel like we're in the midst of um a paradigm shift and there's there's path dependencies and some people are you know set on walking the way they've been walking um but but facts on the grounds are, are sort of changing rapidly
1: you know i think the enhanced can do six is a really <laughs> it's a really good example of something that is 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 licensed we have a huge amount of um, operating experience, and just the, the way that that Canada is hitting it out of the ballpark in terms of the refurbishments and building that supply chain, that in, you know industrial workforce, really shows. And you know, we've got a back and forth, uh, Chris, on on are can do is really the gold standard globally. Well, regardless of your perspective on that, can do is the right choice for Canada to do right now. There's no doubt about that. That is the right choice, in in my humble opinion. For Canada to do, because it turns out that whether it's slightly technically inferior or superior, that matters so much less than having those real human real world factors going on. And that's why I'm saying, you know, I like the AP 1000. It's not because it's my favorite, you know, dream light water reactor that I dream about it at night, but it is the one that we have a workforce that just built it. We have a, a supplier that has a warm running supply chain to build that plant. We have a design certification, and now our regulator has gone through the entire regulatory process twice of giving it permission to actually load fuel. Those are such great advantages. Why throw them away? Why are we looking at throwing that huge advantage away? You know, we talk all the time about going down that learning curve. And I agree, we should go down that learning curve. Let's get a jump start. Let's go on the start from the sixth of a kind, not from the first of a kind. And and that's not to say we shouldn't, I, I want to be clear, I'm not anti-SMRs in any ways. I'm not anti-generation four technology. But we have to learn from the past and figure out, even if it's not the most shiniest, newest technology, the technology that we can have those human, those very real human factors. Let's create a policy environment and a market environment that's conducive to deploying that technology. And get those and start really actually learning and getting down that. And I I just, you know, one of the things that's so interesting to me is I feel like the AP1000 kind of has been besmirched. But as someone who was when I was a kid, I I went to one of these conferences uh, uh, with my family and we saw Westinghouse sort of present on the AP1000. And I sort of heard the very same marketing rhetoric that we hear about SMRs, about these dramatic simplifications in uh, safety systems. You know, it's a hundredfold safer um, then the existing fleet, uh, it's 342, I believe structure, you know, modules that we're going to snap together on site. We've reduced by over 50% the number of safety critical welds in the primary system. And it turned out that didn't matter as much as having a great supply chain, having a good EPC that was familiar, have a regulator that was well oiled. And what I'm trying to say is, okay, we went through the hardest part. We got to the other side. Let's not let's not kind of take our victory and try to b- build on that rather than starting from scratch.
0: Well, I love that uh, that analogy used of, of, you know, the need for f- maybe less nuclear engineering right now and more financing engineering policy. Um, well, policy engineering. Policy right, engineering. Maybe is
1: the right way to, yeah, absolutely. absolutely Because um, the nuclear engineering is superb. And if I could just fanboy out a little bit here on, on the why I sort of love the AP 1000 as this sort of evolutionary design. That like goes that when I see the AP1000 nuclear steam supply system, I see in that 70 years of perfecting the um, the uh, the pressurized water reactor nuclear steam supply system. And what's really cool about this is, as we talked about before, we had two we had three major, um, you know, manufacturers of PWRs in the U.S. And Westinghouse now is really two of them because they bought the combustion engineering nuclear business. Which had originally been sold off to a Swiss company called ABB, but then Westinghouse bought it. So what we did is we kind of took the best of everything, right? If you look at the steam generators in the AP1000, right, they are based on the history of the System 80 steam generators that were first deployed at Palo Verde, and now are of course deployed by the South Koreans in the OPR1000, the APR1400s. But even going a little bit back before it, they're actually side—they're a little bit smaller than the System 80 steam generators. So the ones that are really based on the Arkansas Nuclear One unit number two steam generators, right? The pressurizer is basically the pressurizer that was based at South Texas Project and made bigger, 50% bigger than you would normally see in a classical PWR. So it can better, you know, handle transients and accident situations or loss of feedwater transients. The core is built on, you know, DOLF 4 and TAHANG 3, I'd probably, you know, Butchering the pronunciation of those of those European reactors. The core shroud is Waterford Waterford Unit Number Three. The reactor coolant pumps are based in what our experience. Actually, in the first pressurized water reactor, they're canned like shipping port and Yankee Row. So we really have we've taken this sort of mixture of Westinghouse Heritage, Combustion Heritage, and we've tried to figure out how can we get the best, what works best, and put it all together into a single nuclear steam supply system. And where we really did that innovation was on the safety systems and making them completely passive, which is just a massive driver of not only safety, but simplification. I don't think we talk about that enough in the fact that you know, one of the major com- drivers of complexity in a generation two active safety system nuclear power plant is just like the emergency core cooling system, right? If you think about what you have even for BWR or PWR, core ECCS, right? You have a high, you have high pressure systems, like, you know, your high pressure coolant or safety injection, your hip sees, right? And that requires a whole set of piping, whole set of pumps, whole set of instrumentation and control and safety critical wiring and, and load centers, as well as an emergency diesel generator. And then you have to have low pressure, a whole low pressure system as well. LIPS, your LIPSI or, or, or you know, a low pressure coolant injection or low pressure safety injection with its own independent set of instrumentation and control its own wiring, its own you know independent sets of piping with passive systems. We're able to eliminate all of that and make some dramatically simpler systems that we have in the AP 1000 that don't require external power that are just eliminate all of that piping and all of that, that, that wiring and, and pumps. That's a huge, huge driver of simplicity. And, and, and we've now built it and we've operated it and we've licensed it. And that is that's kind of the best of what I want, right? I want kind of these great nuclear steam supply systems that are economical, that, that just chunk out power and simplify the safety systems.
0: So, I mean, what's your degree of confidence looking at the past again? Uh, maybe at some of the best of the best in terms of Palo Verde that um, building a third unit of an AP1000 is going to cost down significantly. Is there an evidentiary oh, think, basis you know, to that? It's is that not a, just
1: you, a much smarter guy than me, Kur Shivran, also at MIT, re- released a really good report about about this, which really showed massive price reductions. You know, over forty to fifty percent of what Vogel costed uh, in, in the next of a kind uh, AP one thousand. I'm pretty confident about it. Even if we look at, there were big price reductions from Vogel three to Vogel four, right? Uh, just in that one unit. But I think, given you know, uh, as I won't say who, but someone at Westinghouse one time said to me. You know, we did everything at Vogel about as hard as possible. We like just slammed ourselves into concrete walls over and over and over again. And the one advantage that you have of that experience is that we're not going to do it again. And we know exactly how to do it that uh, better. And the the other thing is, is that Vogel was so expensive that we only have really – it's going to be very, very hard to make it more expensive. <laughs> so we can be assured – I'm highly confident it will be cheaper – The better question, I think, to ask is, will the industry and will utilities seize this opportunity? You know, if we wait another 15 years or 20 years to build the next AP1000, I'm not, you know, it might not be cheaper. But right now we have a workforce that's coming off of Vogel, that's experienced. We have an EPC, uh, arguably one of the best EPCs, Bechtel, that has built this, that has the design. We have a design ready. We have Westinghouse gearing up their supply chain to supply the Polish reactors. Let's take advantage, and we have multiple sites around the country that have gone through the entire NRC licensing process, which is a multi-million-dollar, five or six-year-long process. And the NRC is like, we're ready, babe. Like, just just take the, make the order and and uh, start construction tomorrow. I, I can't imagine a better situation you could be in where there's zero regulatory risk to start.
0: What I'm seeing looking around the world is, you know, there's some fine U.S. Uh, reactor designs like the B2X300. They're not getting built in the States. That's not where the development's happening. I mean, the first AP1000 or first two units were built in the States, but now we're going over to Poland to do them.
1: Well, the first you know, the first four units of the AP1000 were actually China. Built in China. China.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. yeah exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this, there's a tendency now for the U.S. to be developing technologies, but not actually building them at home, trialing them abroad. Um, that, that seems, is there a historical precedent? For that, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of nuclear exporting countries, but that does seem, it seems odd as an outsider.
1: Well, remember, I think if you went back just a decade ago, we expected there would be somewhat like a dozen nuclear plants under, reactors under construction around the country. And that, a couple of historical factors really screwed us, right? We had the Fukushima Daiichi accident in 2011, but even right before that, we saw hydraulic fracturing really dramatically reduce the price of natural gas and, and increase the abundance of it. So power prices began to plummet, and maybe even a struggle to keep the existing fleet online, as as we all know. And then, and then we also were compounded with that. We went forward with Summer and Vogel, and that was not a great experience. Let's just put it mildly. And I think the, the 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 problem, if I may be so bold, right now is that the industry, kind of to borrow a phrase, needs to come out of the closet a little bit about what happened at Vogel in summer and not shy away with it, not hand wave away from it about what the challenges were, but really level with people and say, this is what happened and this is why it won't happen again. And I think instead much of what's going on is because there's just a lack of confidence that we're going to be able to learn. We've learned from that. You see a very big reticence of utilities to order these plants and even the plants that are in preliminary ordering, like the new scale, uh, orders for uamps for the utah uh, utah municipal utility we're already seeing massive cost overruns being you know you know budgeted out there uh, even before construction begins so i think we need to get to to quote jigger we need to deploy 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 right now and we need to figure out how we're going to deploy and make it an industry-wide effort to deploy and i personally think the bwx x300 a good smr candidate to start on that deployment but i would re- we really do need to figure out a way to deploy another large modular reactor, which which we know we can build. We know the price can only drop from there.
0: You know what I was talking with, I think, Robert Bryce about uh, the savior saving, not the savior. There's many saviors of Diablo Canyon, but the saving of Diablo Canyon. And, you know, this wasn't a nice to have nuclear reactor. This was a need to have nuclear reactor. California on the verge of blackouts and political careers, presidential ambitions on the line if that had happened. And, you know, this astounding turnaround where the Democratic-controlled uh, Senate almost unanimously voted to uh, extend uh, Diablo Canyon. Um, again, that's a need to have nuclear reactor. What is the driver? What is the urgency to build new nuclear in the States? You've got tons of natural gas. Um, is this purely you know, being driven by climate policies at the DOE? Um, is it we need to, again, and this maybe is harkening back to the original rationale for building nuclear in the States. We went through that a little bit, um, that we were using a lot of oil um, before the OPEC crisis hit that coal got a bit expensive. What do you see as the actual pragmatic drivers towards building new, small and even large nuclear in the U S because, because words are not enough, you know, intentions are not not well-meaning
1: administration publicly. What they'll say is we, you know, uh, we've sort of woke up and tasted reality, right? We look at Germany and we look at France and, and we realize that, um, and even if you look at, at no matter what, even if you take someone who, you know, historically some nuclear advocates don't think of as very pro-nuclear, Jesse Jenkins models, his modeling, no matter which way you look at it, requires firm, clean energy to uh, work, right? In any case, it does not rapidly explode the cost of power in the United States. So from a climate change perspective, you know, we saw that great advanced nuclear liftoff report put together in part by Julie Kozarecki at the Department of Energy, a great person. There's a real you know, understanding that if we're going to decarbonize, there's going to be a really big role for nuclear. And to be honest, no matter which way, no matter how many renewables we build out, almost certainly we can't build enough nuclear to get to help that that path. So I really do think for the first time, most Democrats even have come to that realization. Uh, and that, that that is a huge, I think, step change that has hap- happened over the last 10 years. And I think we saw it, I think we see it very much in the Biden administration. But on the flip side, you know, we talk about natural gas. And I think, there's a huge amount of natural gas still in the United States, but as we saw the European, the Russian sort of energy crisis induced by Europe, you know, Europe. I think there's a real now potential for liquefaction for LNG transport. You know, historically we think of natural gas as not a liquid, excuse the pun, market where it's really dependent on the ability to do pipeline trans, transmission. So we didn't see coupling of the natural gas prices that were happening in Europe with the U.S. But now with the massive you know, growth, the liquefaction capacity. All of a sudden, LNG, natural gas, has become a much more volatile fuel in terms of price. Excuse once again the pun, um, than it has been historically. And if history and economics takes us anything, that market is only going to become more and more of a global market. So I'm here, sitting here in New York State, where we just shut down an Indian Point two and three stupidly, and now we are highly, highly dependent on natural gas and oil. Actually, a lot to actually power our plant. So we I see my power bill jumps up and down per price kilowatt hour based on how much natural ga- how natural gas prices go up and down. So we have a major sort of energy security issue not so much in the ability for us, you know, to keep the lights on maybe. And we're we're blessed with that. But in the ability to keep our lights on in a, with a dependable price. And what nuclear aw- offers here is it offers this weird bipartisan you know, issue where where is bipartisan support, even if you're the most climate focused, you want nuclear because you know you need it. And on the, on the right, even if you don't believe climate change is even something or something we should care about, you, you recognize the economic imperative of having it to stabilize electric power prices in the US. So I, I think that's why we are in such a, you know, a place where we saw, you know, a recent um, nuclear fuel bill passed the U.S. Senate with a 96 to 3 vote uh, in right. favor of it. And there's nothing really in the United States that we still agree on that. Like, and you can't get a post office renamed with that sort of voting sort of uh, record. And so we're in a weird space where, for different reasons, we can come together on nuclear power.
0: Right, right. I mean, this is uh, potentially, you know, reminiscent of of Putin's policy of building nuclear in Russia to spare internal use, don't get high in your own supply of natural gas and free up more for export. Is that is that kind of what you're seeing as a pragmatic driver beyond climate?
1: Yeah, I think that the United States is going to try to become a major LNG exporter, especially to Europe, right? And we have the ability to do it. And we've seen massive build out of LNG capacity. We're seeing obviously in the European case, the ordering of a huge amount of LNG. And I think um, you know, it comes with two sides, as I was just saying. I think, yes, we're going to try to become a massive exporter. And I don't think, I think there's a real strong economic, environmental, and geostrategic reason, national security reason why we the United States should be a source uh, of that. But on the flip side, that comes with making LNG a global commodity that's priced at global prices, that, sh- that is going to be sensitive on a pricing perspective to global supply disruptions. And something like electric power, I don't think we want to be so tightly correlated to events that we can't control. I just think one of the things that, you know, we don't want to talk about, maybe if you're a very climate-friendly person, but it's just a truth. One of the, the drivers and the reason why I think America pulled ahead of Europe so much in sort of GDP growth is that we had a fracking boom. You know, first, uh, under the late Bush, but really through Obama and and, and early Trump, we we increased oil and natural gas production. And I think that was a huge driver of economic growth and opportunity in the United States, especially compared to a place like the European Union, where there's no fracking, basically, that happened. We see the consequences of that in, in multiple ways. I think we need to think longer term about how are we gonna decouple our global energy markets and the supply that Americans get in their their mail every month from the whims of what's happening five thousand miles away. And there's no better technology, if I may be so bold, than that, than nuclear energy. Considering that we have a place like Canada and Australia and you guys have great uranium supply. And I I don't think we're gonna be in major conflict with with the the French the French want
0: some Canadian uranium now too, but
1: I think a lot of people want Canadian uranium, and I, I think you know the guys at Cameco. To their their credit, they are the smartest people in my mind. And the, they bought Westinghouse for a fire, for a, a cheap price. They also forty nine percent of it at least, and they have this massive these high grade uranium ore that they have mine sites ready to go. This is this is a huge win for Canada, and I think a huge win for the United States that Canada is so ready to to meet that supply.
0: James, uh, I'm coming stateside in a couple hours. I'm going to have to cut it here so I can catch my flight down to Boston, going to MIT for a little nuclear workshop. Um excited to report on that and maybe interview some folks down there. Um, but a pleasure chatting again. Uh, so much more I'd like to touch on and so much more we will touch on uh, going forward, my friend. But thank you for this.
1: Thanks so much, Chris, for having me and have a safe, safe travels.